Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd, and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of God Pod. It's very good to have you back with us. If you have listened to these before, if you haven't, uh, welcome to your very first edition of God Pod. And today we have um, uh, the three of us who are the usual cast of three uh, in God Pod. So there's my, myself, Graham Tomlin, uh, today, and we have Jane Williams. Hello. Hello, Jane. Good, Jane's with us. Hello, as well. hello, Graham. Um, very good, Jane. There's uh, dialing in from Cardiff. I think that's right. That's correct, yep. And we have Michael, Michael Lloyd, dialing in from Oxford. Hello, Graham. Hello. Hello, Mike. Hello. Apologies Hello. If, the, uh, if there's like a bit of strangeness. Exactly, you're there as well, yeah, good. And um, yeah, I mean, as probably everyone's used to listening to Zoom calls and all the strange things that goes on in it at the moment. So if it sort of crackles from time to time, apologies for that. But we also have a very special guest today, and uh, we are delighted that um, uh, someone that we've been longing to get onto GodPod for a, a number of years has um, come on now. We have uh, Morris Glasman, Lord Glasman, with us. So Morris, welcome to GodPod. Thank you for having me. Great to be yeah, here. Great to have you. So if you don't know Morris, Morris is um, uh, a Labour peer in the House of Lords. Uh, he's an academic by background, has been involved in the sort of citizens movement, uh, director I think, of the Common Good Foundation, um, yep. plays the trumpet, mm. and uh, he's Jewish by background. And anything else you want to say about yourself, Morris? Or does that sort of summarise most things? Yeah, Dad. I think Dad, you know, Three children, so you know that was a big role, especially in lockdown. Yeah, that's an important thing. <laughs> oh, and Spurs supporter. Exactly, that's right. Spurs yeah. supporter. So, Spurs supporter. There you go. Yeah. So Arsenal fans, turn away now. Please, please. Um, Yeah. Well, that's very good. Well, uh, we won't mention the result against Man United the other day, but. Um, other than that, we're fine. But it's just, uh, Morris, it's great to have you with us on God's Ball today, and so really looking forward to the discussion. Me too. I, I guess uh, to start off with, I think one of the things it would be really interesting to talk around is um, the, the place of the church in modern life, because I suppose you know, in, in maybe 50, 100 years ago, there was a sense that the church kind of knew its place within Western societies. It was fairly established. It was something that was uh, had a kind of rather unquestioned local clergy had a, a sense of, you know, um, position within local communities that was fairly unquestioned. And uh, there was a sense that, you know, the, the church was, was was kind of quite close to the centres of power. It was something that, um, that was, was fairly self-confident in its place within society. And I guess one of the factors maybe over the past few decades uh, has been the um, the kind of disruption of that and the sense of um, the church not quite knowing its place any longer. 
uh, and wondering what its place is. And I'd like to explore that a bit on a number of different levels, really. And, and I suppose one, one is um, locally. Uh, I guess a lot of a lot of people who listen to Godpod are involved in churches right around the country, right around the world, in fact. Um, and I suppose particularly within our own Church of England, we have a church building in just about every single community uh, around the country, every suburb, every village, every town, every part of every city, there's a, there's a church there. Some of them are large, some of them are small, um, uh, but that presence is, is still there. And I suppose my, my initial question is, what do you think is the significance of that, um, that sense of, of the church being not just this sort of big institution, but being kind of located in places and communities? Um, because I think often those local churches can feel a little bit, well, what's our role anymore? What, 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 what is the significance of our, of our kind of, you know, um, uh, of being a, at a parish church or a local church? I mean, well, what's the significance of that, do you think, sort of religiously, politically, in all kinds of other ways? Yeah, uh, well, it's of just enormous importance um, in the history of the country. Don't, don't forget that the original polity was an ecclesiastical polity, that the that the church founded the original political, the polity of our country was was founded as a kingdom of God, if you like, uh, and, the, and the parish was the fundamental unit of governance. Uh, and that's how we, we developed law. And that's how, you know, with the blood money, that's a huge story, actually made murder a crime. This was all um, from the church and the sense of the geography was was fundamental and and the parish itself uh, was the fundamental unit um of identity and of association so um we we did polling and and just to let you know the people still describe themselves according to the 1536 parish map rather than any other parish map that has ever existed since or political map that has come into being they describe so for example i'm in london and and I live in the London borough of Hackney, but nobody describes themselves like that. They say they're from Dalston, Stamford Hill, Stoke Newington, Hackney Wick. And this is true across the whole country, that people describe themselves as from, from their parish. So it's a very um, enduring thing. And um, the second um, aspect that I think is vital is that, is that the church has been witnessed because of its local parish organisation to all the changes that has happened in the country. It, it's a faithful witness to all of that and has therefore always been the first to recognise issues relating to industrialisation, issues relating to poverty, issues relating to isolation. It's an extraordinary, um, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, and then, really, the, this now turns the church into a very countercultural organisation because... All the assumptions about globalization was that place didn't matter. All you needed was an internet connection and a university degree, and off you go. You can work from anywhere, live anywhere. And and what that meant essentially is, is that the people who lived in what were called the faraway towns, the abandoned places, the left behind, the church was a fundamental anchor institution, once again, um, uh, a witness to that and so what's fundamental I think at the moment when you say the church doesn't know its place any longer the fundamental conversation is about whether the church remains committed to place or whether it dissolves online into a values-based 
you know, congregations and, and communities and ceases to be, you know, central to me in the understanding of Christianity is real physical presence, face-to-face um, -face human relationships. So I'm, um, let's just say that I'm actively involved in that conversation because the, the role of the church seems to me to be central in this aspect. Which other institution is going to uphold relationships and love in a de desacralized, dehumanized world? This is where I see the church fundamentally is it brings very special gifts and always has. And love relationships and civility are crucial to that. And the loss of that. So one of the aspects of the church, therefore, is that it's a civic institution as well as many other things. And it's its role as a civic institution that really engages my imagination. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, place, it seems to me, has become much more central just over the last few months, year or so. Um, all kinds of things. I mean, it's partly COVID, isn't it, that we've all had to stay in one place in a way that we've not been used to. Um, and uh, we've had meals together as couples and families in a way that we've forgotten how to do. We've walked our own local districts. Um, uh, and it's a, it's a sense is that it's almost as though place is being forced back on us, um, locality to, to um, re-anchor us. And I suppose there are other things, sort of bigger national things like the whole Brexit debate, which raises the issue of um, identity in a, in, a, in a way that globalisation thought we'd, we wouldn't be interested in anymore. All kinds of things that are making us think about place differently at the moment, it seems to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So if we conceptualise that, we're living through a change of era. You know, this is what is happening, and that's a very scary thing to live through. Um, it's not a conceptual change. There's there's real changes, and 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 the eternal battles between, you know, the universal and the particular, between good and evil. Th these are all being played out in in real time. So, Jane, what I would say is, is that it's been building for a long time, and and the word you mentioned is vital. Globalization that was considered states of the world, the borders would matter less, the place would matter less, um, that technology would determine um, how we live, that democracy didn't really matter anymore. So I think Brexit is to be understood in that framework, um, that it was shocking. It was shocking because it violated the assumptions that had organised the limits of our imagination for 40 years. So let's just look at three crucial aspects of that change of era that precede COVID, but have been intensified by the COVID experience. The first is that we assumed that the nation state was sort of like a regional administrator of a global order, that it there was nothing particularly distinctive about that, and that it particularly shouldn't play a role in the economy, that that was part of a previous era, the post-war era and state planning. I think that there's been a very big change in that regard that we're living through, that the state, as we can see, has a very active role in the economy. And how you conceptualise that as Christians, I think, is, is a fundamental issue. What is a Christian political economy? Can it, can it be the case that human beings and nature are treated merely as fungible commodities to be moved around and bought and sold? You know, this is, this is the assumptions that we've been working with. Um, so the re-emergence of the nation state. The second is 
is that we assumed that the working class were left behind, irrelevant to, to history, that they were no longer had real historical agency or a coherent community. Jane, that's another shock with the Brexit vote. That was also a massive shock for, for people like me uh, in Labour. Uh, the election on in December, there was a, a new class coalition was, was formed, and it was formed through a recognition um, that the working class were not finished, that they played a very active role politically in a, and had to be treated in a, in a less humiliating and degraded way. So we saw that at the beginning of COVID. Do you remember that time, the first five, six weeks, where we applauded health service workers, we applauded um, bus drivers, delivery truckers, you know, I, I got a new definition of the working class. It was something that you can't do from home, you know, that it involved leaving the house and doing things for other people on the whole with your hands. So at that time, and don't want to lose it, there was a recognition, for example, that why were care workers um, involved in the gig economy on low-grade, you know, contracts with, with no status when they were actually putting themselves at risk and the people that we'd contracted out the care for our parents to. You know, this is a, a huge story, I think. Uh, and the third, so the first, the re-emergence of the nation state is going to be part of the future. The re-emergence of the working class is part of that new settlement, that they're not to be treated um, as the left behind. And, and the third is, is in what you mentioned, is the importance of place. But if you think about globalisation, it has no place for place. Now, the issue for the church, Graham, is that it got very bought into those two aspects of globalization. It got it bought into the globalization narrative in, in lots of ways. Um, and so, you know, in regards to its role as a state, it saw itself as a service provider, you know, as providing state-like welfare roles. And as regards the market, it saw itself as attracting new members, increasing its market share and these things. And, and in many ways lost its understanding of its covenantal role in maintaining the integrity of place and the dignity of labour within a national um, ecclesiastical polity. So I think I just wanted to say that, Jane, it's a profound change that's going on. And uh, Michael, it can be evil. It could be good. It's up for grabs. You know that's the, that's the scary thing. Yes. Well, and like everything else, from the printing press to uh, the internet. Um, but it, it's interesting what you say about the persistence of place. And I found your reference to the fifteen thirty six map. Was it mm -hmm. really interesting? It, uh, one of the things that's always struck me is that. Um, with the advent of television and radio, I thought that regional accents would, would merge into a kind of conglomerate whole, and it's just not happened. There's no. something persistent about place, even in a quite mobile uh, society. So in terms of the role of the church, uh, of course, with all the pressures on parish, mainly financial, um, it, it, remains, it remains there. And often the doctors have left, the post office has left, the railway stations closed, the shops have shut. But at least there is still a church and a community around the church that says something about presence and commitment to, to place and to the people in the place. 
Yeah. And and th 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 can we talk about that at uh, uh, three three levels of of let's say reenchantment of you know the 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 desacralization of land and place. That's what I was referring to. So not only was it that everywhere could be bought and sold, but it was also the case that everywhere was basically the same, which, as you say, cannot be true. And there, and the, so the the land was abandoned. The place was abandoned. Um, so that's one aspect. And then, then we all know how the people in small towns and villages were talked about, you know, left behind, um, reactionary. There was a terrific demonization, Jane, during the Brexit politics, where these people were seen as essentially reactionary with no real consideration for how these 40 years had left them with a sense of abandonment and humiliation. But that, and that has to be um, understood. So um, the, land, the, the status of work, uh, Michael was, you know, the manual work was considered a failure rather than absolutely essential to, to our lives. Uh, and then the desacralization of, of any sense of politics, of, of how we live together and, and negotiate and build relationships one with the other in order to exert some control over the environment around us. That's why take back control was such a powerful message in, in that regard, because people felt um, utterly, utterly powerless. Um, so this is this is vital, and and it seems that the church is is the most essential institution for revitalizing a sense of attachment and association. And my argument is that this has been true of the church for the vast majority of its history. That, the, but even including budgets, the way the budgets have been pushed to the bishops and away from the vicars, it, it, there's a lack of agency locally that needs to be addressed fundamentally. I guess what, one of the one of the narratives of our time, I suppose, is is this kind of polarization between you know you can configure as left or right, or between sort of you know particular and universal or whatever. And I suppose one of the one of the ways to characterize that is to say that you know maybe on the on the right there's a sort of emphasis more on you know um, uh, you know the the local the, you know, the family the tribe the you know, commitment to those who are kind of like us and, you know, that, that sense of, you know, um, upholding the, 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 um, the value of the, the, the tribe, as it were. And on, the, on the other side, maybe on the left, there's more a sense of, no, 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 the, the value has to be the whole of mankind as a kind of abstract um, sort of universal, you know, the kind of globalization you've been speaking about. And, that, and I suppose, um, you know, the there's danger on, on both sides of that, aren't there? One, on, one danger, there's the, there's the you know my you know my my tribe my nation is better than everybody others. You get the sort of the kind of racism that sometimes comes out of that. At the other end of the scale, the kind of globalization, the abstract love of all mankind means I can ignore my my the person who lives next door to me, and I don't don't have any particular obligation towards uh, those who are who, who are near to me. And I suppose it's always struck me that that the you know the deeply Jewish Christian idea of loving your neighbor, you know your your primary civic responsibility is not just actually to your family or your tribe, nor is it to the whole of mankind. It's actually to the person that lives next door to you, mm. the person that you encounter when you walk out of your door every morning. Um, that is a sort of different vision from, that actually maybe steers away through some of the, 
the, um, the, the the difficulties of that kind of polarization that we have in our kind of modern life. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that and the significance of the idea of love of neighbor in particular, because it does seem to me that's a deeply radical idea that, that you know, our civic responsibilities, we have an obligation to our neighbors, not just a kind of optional thing, which we feel like it. Um, we have an obligation, not just to our family and tribe, those who are like us, not just to the whole of mankind, but actually to our, our neighbor who may or may not be different, like, like us and so on. But, so yeah, that's my, um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, so not just love your neighbor, the, it's a very difficult word, but the importance of being a faithful neighbor. Mm. So this is the thing with the church, is that it stayed in the place through all of this. So it's, it's a, you know, that idea of fidelity to place is really important. Just, just to begin, Graham, it's all part of conceptualising the changes we're living through. So I, I would say that, on the whole, the right has been very much in favour of the market, you know, of the marketization of things. And the left has been more in favour of the state. It's all got very yep. confused. This will yep. Yep. work its way out. So it's not just that the left is committed to the family of mankind and, and the right is, is more concerned with tradition. These are all taking shape now. So what we can definitely say is, is that the Conservatives moved into that space during the Brexit debate under Boris, you know. But 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 that that's an enormous change that... We seem to forget because COVID has happened that they were in favour of using the state to regionally target economies and build up railways. And uh, the poor things have got completely blown away. I, I say a cloud no bigger than a man's hand appeared over Wuhan and all the plans were gone. You know, it, um, but, yeah. but that was um, an initial thing. And... And and certainly, so what does that speak to? How do we? How do you, as Christians, conceptualise that? So ju it's just to say, you, I, I'm enormously inspired by my own religion, uh, the Jewish religion, and, and particularly around the concept of covenant of obligation mm. to others of something that goes on intergenerationally. If you look, uh, Jane, uh, I've been really studying over lockdown the biblical passages relating to the jubilee. You know, the it's got mm. things to say about the land mm. as a active partner of debt relief we're now moving into a stage where the state is essentially propping up the private sector you know it's so how are we going to conceptualize what better way can we conceptualize debt relief than say that we waive the debt but in its place there comes a mutual obligation to place to support vocational colleges to support uh, a new system of regional banks as partners in the civic ecology see the church used to have partners it used to have schools, you know. There was the there was. I'm particularly thinking about in the two time the the grammar school system, and and it and it has the the hospitals and it's it's how do we re knit a civic ecology that is bound in place and answerable to the people who live in that place, and what's the role of the church? And also, grammars. It's really important to recognise that you know, what they call in the Bible the powers and principalities, uh -huh. you know, that there's real forces in the world. Uh, and we see in China, for example, I think that's another thing that's become to consciousness during the COVID period, is that you have an enormously powerful market, an enormously powerful state, and no society at all, no democracy, no liberty. And that's 
enormously efficient and productive. And so how we conceptualize this is, is, is really fundamental. So I do see the church as a very fundamental principle of society itself. And when it comes to this relationship, is that is that I think this is just another one of my thoughts, is that the church is very vulnerable and it's been used to sort of being the host and being the giver, but it needs genuine relationships, loving relationships itself to open up to others mm. and, and to build a civic polity that's based on church ideas, reciprocity, grace, mutual concern, that these are these are the vital aspects that the church brings in its real physical presence in place. I'm very interested in your use of the word covenant there, Morris. Um, unpack what that might actually look like okay. in terms of local relationships. Um, particularly, I suppose, because I think you, you've talked about the, con the contrast between a, a contract and a covenant. Yeah. And uh, just right. explore that a little bit for it, us. It, it's just to share. It, it's been doing... A lot of very valuable work for me lately, so I'll just share it. But in a spirit of vulnerability, I'm just thinking, how how do we move to a better place? How do we begin to conceptualise? So you could say, for example, that we don't need to use our imaginations too much to understand that we are a covenantal society in many ways. So if you look at Parliament, it, you know, suddenly we're talking about the Henry VIII laws, you know, it, Parliament is binding across generations and it brings together through, through the commons um, all the different places are represented as places. So that's the commons. The commons is that. Uh, and I would argue, Jane, that, that the Lords historically is the vocational chamber. That was the representation of the bishops, but it was also the representation. It used to be the case, um, Michael, that that Oxford and Cambridge were represented there, you know, um, as knowledge. Until quite recently. Yeah, and the City of London was represented there and the army is represented there. These, we, so with a big imaginative renewal to conceptualise, I think, the House of Lords as, as, a, as a vocational chamber based on not representation from place, but representation from knowledge. But the essential point, Jane, is that if you think about... Parliament, and and then you think about the monarchy, and and then you think about common law. These are ancient institutions that are still constitute our polity. So, in our polity, in our politics, the covenant is strong. Now, just this is a vital thing. I believe that the church is part of that covenant, and and my question to you is: the church aware of its covenantal obligation here? So then let's move towards two things. The first thing is that we abandoned the covenantal concept in the economy. It became contractual. And so a contract is just an immediate exchange of things between hands of equivalents. And so it has been the case that in the economy, there's huge inequality. You know, there, there's a real lack of, of covenantal commitment. So then to go, Graham, to what covenant means. So covenant is a institutional framework that supports intergenerational solidarity. So that's between the dead and the yet to be born, to, to, to use Burke's phrase. So there's an intergenerational element. It's not just about now. It's about seeing yourself as part of a history that where you're bound 
by obligation. So that's that's Parliament, monarchy, um, church, common law um, adequately grasp that. Um, it, but it's also a covenant also has a sacred view of nature, of land. So we see in the Jubilee, for example, in the original covenant that the land had to be left fallow every seven years and trust in the land. So we've got to move away from viewing nature as just a commodity to be exploited, but as a partner. So one way of viewing capitalism, to be blunt, is that it seeks to commodify creation itself, human beings and nature. You know, that's the, and, and the resistance to that is fundamental because what you don't want to do is then transfer all power to an administrative state that also just treats people as a desiccated administrative unit. So the point of place is to have a genuine human-scale polity that can have some power to, to shape things. And, and we talked about it a little earlier, but also in relation to the covenant every seven years, um, the debts are annulled. So there can't be this growing inequality between yep. between debtors and, and creditors. And every 49 years, uh, the property is restored to its original owners. So, so there's many aspects of covenant I've found that are, are radical. So what I mean by it is we don't need to, to really grasp abstractly. We live in a covenantal policy, but we've just lost grip on these two things, uh, the economy and the sense of place. And I'm very interested to talk about to you that I think the church is a covenantal institution. How does the church renew its covenant? And, oh. and what is the nature of that covenant? Because that's it, it is an ancient covenantal institution yeah. that we can now see is in, is in danger of disappearing yeah. or, or not being present in those places. And what would the consequences of that be? I think just relating that idea of covenant and contract to maybe early discussion about about neighbor i guess one of the one of the contrasts i've always sensed between a contract and a covenant and a contract is a kind of agreement between two parties where if the other party fails to agree there you know, to, to deliver their part of the bargain you you're free to walk away you know an employment contract you know i, I enter into a contract with a, an employer where they agree to pay me if i if i don't turn up to work they no longer have to pay me if they stop paying me i can walk out of the contract you know it's a kind of you know I'll do my bit if you do yours. Um, whereas a covenant seems to be something entirely different, which is where we sort of say, I, I will keep my side of the bargain, even if you don't keep yours. So you well, know, marriage, for example, is a... Well, we know, we, yeah, I get it. But we know the consequences um, of that. So there's got to be, and this is the tricky thing, um, Mike and Jane, is that within a covenantal polity, there are sanctions and obligations to maintain huh. the common good. It's not... It's not freely entered into in in that in that liberal in that liberal way. And and Graham, how how do we begin to build those relationships? So I've found my experience is, is to build with neighbours um, a, a recognition of the threats to your life. So, for example, um, what's coming is is. There's going to be very high unemployment. There's going to be people who can't pay their rent. You know, okay. we've got to build relationships with people to yeah. that they can stay in their in their homes. Sure. I mean, this is a yeah. so I, I just I just see this as as really linked to the political economy about, about wages, um, 
being able to yeah, live and together. And it's why I think you know, a covenantal understanding of society and <laughs> politics is, is so helpful in that, because actually a covenantal uh, um, understanding says that in my relationship with my neighbour is covenantal, not contractual. In other words, exactly. I, I, am, I have an obligation to my neighbour to ensure that if I love them as myself, the things that I secure for myself, shelter, home, food, you know, well-being and everything else, I, I, I'm as eager to, that they have it as I have it as well. Yeah. But it can't be, I mean, the, the difficult area is when it comes to issues like violence on the streets, yeah. um, drug dealing, prostitution, these aspects, it can't be neutral on that. It needs to build yeah. relationships around that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So that's just, sort of in, just dropping it in, Michael, in relation to, you know, the issues that you're interested in. Indeed. So, um, so but, this is the move away from a sort of value-neutral liberalism Yep. But it must be very strong for mutual respect, liberty. I mean, there's loads of things to talk about in this regard, because the liberty is also a covenantal inheritance, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of expression, which are also being besieged at this moment. And uh, though things are being besieged, I, I, I think there's also quite a lot that's encouraging in the current moment. I mean, uh, during the COVID crisis but when I developed it for instance I had emails and meals and things from people in the street who I didn't know um and then and then when we went to clap we, we, we actually met each other you know from a safe distance obviously a crisis like that does seem to show up the importance of place but also reawaken that sense in people um that, that they depend upon it yeah well, let's I, I do, sorry, sorry. I, I, I do wonder if the church has slightly allowed itself to um, forget it, its own reality and actually has bought into this idea that religion is privatised. So um, we get together with people who are like us and share our interests rather than actually that commitment to uh, locality, to place, to our neighbour that we're talking about. And whether actually you're quite challenging the church to to remember what it is not just to contribute from the strength that we think we have but actually to remember the, the strengths that we've forgotten about ourselves because well, it is a covenant and not, and not a club exactly yeah. <laughs> and, and and completely so i think i think jane i'm trying to be as civil as i can be but i am <laughs> i am i am distressed in some way by by the lack of the presence of the church as this civic institution that is fundamental to the well-being of the polity um, completely. And, and, and Michael, let's, let's talk for a moment about the miracle of that, that what we did witness was not just the persistence of regional accents, which you quite rightly drew attention to, but that love, compassion, mercy and neighbourliness were still alive in the souls of people. And if you think about the incentive structures over the last 40 to 50 years about career, about money, uh, about self-love, self-regard. It's astonishing that those are still... So I would see those values as very much in, embodied in precisely the most despised group in the society, which is working class, which still have a sense of those things, despite all that has happened. But then let's get to the fundamental Graham, reality of, of what I believe the church brings, which is relationships, the, the centrality of and the courage that you need 
to meet others, to engage with others, and to see where are the points of mutual interests and, and, and engagement. And that's the vital thing, you know, the one-to-one -one conversation with, with neighbours. <laughs> neighbours is not an abstract concept either. And, and, and the idea that, that in, in a local church, it gathers people not because they are like each other, but actually because in some ways they are very, di very different from each other. That's what you often find when you're in a, you know, you're in a sort of small local church, it may not be particularly big, but you get this extraordinary gathering of people that and wouldn't that's come thing is, any is other how way. Do you, how do you bring back then, even, even conceptually, the, the church as an agent of grace in the local place? You know, how do you, how do, you know, the dehumanisation, we talked about the care homes, you know, the lack of love in those places. It is often only the church that is present. Um, Michael, you said you were a chaplain in the universities. It's often just the chaplain who can begin to conceptualise what students are going through in terms of their experiences, which are very... It can feel very inhumane and, and, and that's because they are more of the place than, precisely than others they they live there they eat with the students they go and what, that's what how, they... so, so it's very fragile and vulnerable so what i'm picking up michael when you say that all of those values are there but where is the institutional vision that can restore this this is the question before us i think that yeah. that i'm i'm trying to engage with and it's wonderful to be here but it's let's just say hard going i think it's a vital conversation that we need to have uh, that's about politics it's about economics and it's about the centrality of place and then love and grace in place which is so against the prevailing procedural norms you know that everything should be because it's going to be messy and it's going to be difficult uh, when you talk morris when you talk about um the church recovering its covenantal role within the society that, that we're mm -hmm. part of. But what does that look like? And I guess, does that look like um, a kind of political responsibility? Is, does it look like um, bishops and others making, uh, you know, pulling out injustice when, it, when it's, it's happened on the national sphere? Is, does it look like local parish church drawing together uh, people from different kind of backgrounds? class, ethnicity, and whatever. Can you give us examples of what that actually looks like in practice? Well, it's going it's to look like different things in different places. So you're a bishop of an extraordinarily diverse diocese. Okay. So yeah. your, your obligation is going to be, how do we build a common good here? But a, not a, but a common good in which the vocation of the church plays a central role. So you, you've got to move from a hosting perspective to how do we build love into the system? How do we build relationships between each other? So there are unique gifts that the church brings that are not to be smothered in them. You know, part of this is, yeah. but there's going to be other constituencies and other dioceses and parishes that are quite mono-ethnic or quite not. And there, how do you reach the poor? How do you, how do you reach those who aren't? So I do think that the, these ideas of, of relationships of of love and of grace should be the guiding themes in relation to the covenantal renewal. This is why I'm saying we're not when the church is there to stand witness. So justice is a complicated matter. Justice on the whole looks backwards, you know, at incidents, events. But righteousness, 
looks forward. How do we? How are we going to build a polity where people who have been excluded of all different kinds um, participate on in a reciprocal way in building a, what you might call a civic immune system? Because that's the scary thing about COVID. What, we, what have we got? We've got the NHS and the Treasury. We've got debt and the NHS and we can see that our civic institutions are atrophied, they're very bureaucratic, they don't, there's no ecology, what I call a civic ecology of institutional presence. So the church needs to reach out in need, and as I say, not 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 to, to, to understand its own vulnerability for the continued life of this place. And that's the covenantal role, is how do we renew a human life? And that's the big paradox of... Uh, Jane, which which I, which I have mentioned before to Rowan, is that I do believe that the very idea of citizenship will be redeemed by faith, that faith carries a humanity in it, that citizenship is lost, because now it's just about procedure, just about the right representation of different... It's not about relationships, it's not about politics, actually. And maybe that's um, one example of that. But a year or two back, I did a, a report on... Uh, the community around Grenfell, just thinking about what um, a lot of conversations with people around North Kensington community. One of the things that came out of that was a sense that people had that a lot of the kind of welfare that was provided was seemed rather um, generic, rather faceless, lacking in um, specificity and relationship at all. And in the context of that, I was I visited one of our other churches in another area, which had done something brilliant. They were aware of this very fact that very often people felt that welfare that was offered sort of through the system seemed rather, rather kind of you know distant. You had to sort of queue up in a council office and get a ticket and wait in line and then talk to someone behind a screen, and it just lacked relationship. And so, the, the local church they had a food bank, but they, they then started. Um, gathering together a lot of sort of local, um, uh, you know, advisors on housing, or you know, the local sort of police liaison officer, or people who could advise on mental health, and they had a sort of drop-in cafe where where you'd come along and you'd, you you could get your food from the food bank, but you could also sit down and have a cup of coffee and have a meal with a housing officer or a sort of mental health nurse or the police liaison officer or someone from the church or a volunteer. And actually, they found that they got the people together that needed help in that community much better than any other agency did because they did relationship. Because it was a place where actually this wasn't just a faceless beauty. Yeah, so, Graham, so then the question before us is this How do we free our imaginations to conceptualize how the church can play a genuinely active role in building a relational society exactly. and to? to protect the integrity of place and what are the institutions it needs around it. So in talking about the move from contract to covenant, I'm also talking about, about a move from projects to institutions. You know, how do we, how do we conceptualise this yep. is, is vital. Yeah. But, you know, this is, what, this is what happens when you begin a conversation. I now want, I now want to have another one. <laughs> exactly. Well, you must come back. I know. We could go uh, on, as always, as always we've got Well, I, I just say that I'd love, to, I mean, this is, this is what really matters. What we're talking about is the very heart, yeah. because we we have to be, as I say, we have to be vulnerable, we have to be anxious, but the, the resources, the traditions within the church over its history have had to deal with situations like this more so than any other institution. Yeah. 
you know, plague, um, yep. death, um, the the conquest of the barbarians, and and in all of this, it worked out how to renew, and it and it renewed through grace, and this concept of grace is, I think, really important. Yeah, and drawing on that sort of institutional communal history of the church, and in through many centuries and challenges, is going to be a vital part of that. Yeah, so it's a new chapter, but it's not a new yep. book. So exactly. in a way, the yep. previous chapter that's got to be forgotten. Yep. That that led to a real darkness. I don't know what you think, Jay, but we've got to engage with that a bit, just how empty the last 40 years have been of imaginative promise. You know, it's just either the state or it's the market. Mm. But now we've got a we've got a space to think about how do we actually protect the very basic human life and civility and love when they are genuinely besieged and there's widespread isolation and domination. I mean, look, it's a, what we used to call on left dialectical. On the one hand, you've got all these forces, working class, place. On the other hand, Jeff Bezos made £8 billion two days ago in a day. You know, the emergence of really big powers that dominate people's lives and get into people's homes, you know. So it's... What we used to call in the 70s, heavy. It's heavy. Heavy. <laughs> heavy, but the conversation hasn't been heavy. It's been fascinating to, to do it. And, and uh, as always with Godpod conversations, we could go on for a long, long time, but time defeats us in the end. And um, uh, Morris, we're really grateful to you for coming in today and at least having the beginning of a conversation, a really fascinating one. Well, I'd love to, I'd love to continue it if, if there's any way and, and to engage with this because it seems to be of the moment. Yeah, know. definitely. The, well, maybe we should do... God part two with you. Yeah, the church imagination. It's you yeah. know, it's the key. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll try and do that. We'll get in part two and continue the conversation. Right. So, Morris, really grateful to you for coming, becoming a big part of this today. And um, there's lots there to think about. I've there's one of the God pods I think I go back over and listen to myself, um, just to sort of uh, tease out some of the really fascinating nuggets in there. So, Morris, really grateful to you. Thank you again to Jane and Michael. It's a Lovely to be here. Yep. Well, Very good. And, and, and to say, you know, please be in touch, you know, um, irrespective of this. I just think there's work to do. And definitely. And um, and Jay said at the beginning that Erasmus translated the first sentence as in the beginning there was a conversation. So let's be true to it. That's a covenantal exactly. obligation, too. There it is. So thank you all for listening to this episode of GodPod. And um, we look forward to uh, having you back for the next one when it comes around. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.